0: Wonderful, wonderful. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 tonight. While you're turning there, you need volunteers Friday morning, 9 o'clock, to help collate Bibles. If you're interested in helping, see Mrs. Heidi or Brother Al after the service tonight. Revelation chapter 2. And uh, we are making our way through the book of Revelation. Really, we've just started. And we are in the seven letters to s- seven churches. And tonight, we find ourselves at the church at Pergamos, Revelation chapter 2, and I'll begin reading in verse number 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr. It was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee. Because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. To eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Which thing I hate. Repent. Or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone. And in the stone, a new name written, which no man knoweth saving he that receiveth it. As we study these seven churches in seven cities, we expect that each Church, each city is going to be in a prominent location. None of these churches are in a hidden, backwoods, out-of-the-way village that nobody has ever heard of. We've already seen how the Ephesus and Smyrna were chief cities of Asia Minor. They were uh, important business hubs. They were pagan centers. They uh, were seats of government and commerce. But in the first century, there was no city greater in Asia Minor than the city of Pergamus. You may remember from history when Alexander the Great died, that his vast empire was divided into four parts, four generals. Pergamos was the capital of one of those four parts, kingdom, and it was so for about 150 years. Most of Asia Minor would have been what was known as the Pergamon kingdom. Well, 150 years after Alexander the Great died, the Romans were becoming the world power. And so there was a king named Atlas, A-T-T-L-U-S, that died. And when he died, he wrote in his will, giving his kingdom to the Romans. He had no heir. He knew that the kingdom would descend into civil war. So by merging his kingdom with the Romans, he was essentially guaranteeing Pergamus the security, the peace, the prosperity of being Roman citizens. He actually did a good thing for his kingdom. Rome consolidated the whole area, called it Asia Minor, and made the city of Pergamos the capital of that province. So Pergamus becomes the capital of Asia Minor. And just like Ephesus and Smyrna before, Pergamus was steeped, in paganism no city no city had more paganism and was darker than the city of Pergamus. the city sat on a hill and when you would come up uh, up the sea into the harbor you could see temples dotted all over that hill there was a temple to zeus there was a temple to athena there was a temple to the day of roma which is the the god of the romans and though the pergamos led the world in idol worship the city was also known for its Library. Pergamos was a university town. It was a cultural city, and it had the second largest library in the world, second only to Alexandria. In that library, there were 200,000 volumes before the printing press, every one of them copied by hand. Athena was the goddess of wisdom and philosophy. And so the library was built surrounding the temple to Athena. So you could be in the temple, and then you could come into the library, and you could move back and forth without really leaving the area, and it was all like one building. I'll tell you an interesting little side story. At least it's interesting to me, and then we'll get to the text. The king of Pergamos envied the library of Alexandria. Alexandria had the largest library, 400,000. And so the king of Pergamos tried to entice the librarian in Alexandria to come to Pergamos and help build their library. And the king, of or the, the, the pharaoh of Egypt, he was infuriated, and so to keep his librarian from defecting to Pergamos, he put him in jail. He jailed his librarian to keep him in town, and then, then he banned all exports of papyrus to Pergamos. Papyrus was paper before there was paper. That was the thing that they wrote on. And so by banning paper to Pergamus, he was essentially crippling the king of Pergamos' ability to build his library. But, but necessity is the mother of invention. So Pergamus developed a new writing material in the place of, of papyrus. What they did is they discovered they could take animal skins and tan it, and stretch it, and dry it, and, and it became known as parchment, and that was one step closer to paper, and that's where it comes from. I thought that was a fascinating little story. <laughs> now, just like in Smyrna, we know virtually nothing about the church at Pergamos. This church is mentioned nowhere else in the New Testament, so we can only guess as to how it started or who pastored that church. But by the time that this church was birthed in this city, demonic forces had ruled in Pergamos for over a thousand years. And whoever came into this city and planted the gospel flag had to be a very brave soul. He is coming into a place where there is no other church. There are no other believers. There are no other Christians. It is a place where paganism and demonism has ruled for all of this time. And nowhere would there be a greater battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light than in this city. And you have to understand that in pagan cultures, darkness permeated every part of life. You couldn't escape it. It's in the marketplace. It's in the temple. It's in the government. It's in the schools. It's in the universities. It is everywhere. And so Christ writes a letter to this church that is seated in Pergamos. And in this letter he includes both recommendation or commendation and rebuke. There are four other letters that he writes where he has stood and they he, he rebukes them for, for what they have failed to do. And when he writes in this letter, he introduces himself in verse number 12 as he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Now, we're not spending a lot of time on these inter- different introductions, and we saw how that... In every letter, he introduces himself a different way. But he's getting ready to write to a church, a little cat out of the bag, that is a compromising church. And he comes to them with the sword of judgment. Now, this would mean something to Pergamus, And the reason why is Pergamus was the seat of Roman authority in that province. And when a Roman official had the right of execution, it was said that he had the right of the sword. Well, the only person in that province that had that right lived in Pergamos. He was the proconsul. So when Jesus says, I come to you with a sharp sword with two edges, they would know exactly what he was talking about. Now for just a few minutes, I want you to look at the letter that Christ writes to the church at Pergamos. And I want you to notice, first of all, the applause of Christ for this church. As in every... Other letter, Christ begins by telling the church what he sees and what he commends. He informs them that he is aware of what's happening in this church. I know. He's been walking in their midst. He has first-hand knowledge of every victory won, every challenge faced, every trial endured, and every false doctrine that has been debated, or every false doctrine that has been tolerated. In fact, he says that he is so informed of their circumstances that he even knows the name of one of their own that has been martyred, and that is Antipas. He knows everything about this church. You know, occasionally we'll have a guest preacher come to our church and he wants to see the buildings. And so I will give him the grand tour of our facilities, our campus, but I don't show him everything. I'll take him to the office building, and I I might show him the print shop. I don't take him to the storage rooms that are filled with all of our junk. I don't take him there. I don't take him and show him anything that needs repair. It's like if you hear company is coming unexpected. If you're like us, our house always has the lived-in look. And so you hurry and you scurry and you try to clean up the areas that you think the guest is going to be in. But there's one room. There's one room where you just shove everything in and just close the door and hopefully they don't go into that room. You can look around, but there are certain rooms I do not want you to be in. You know, sometimes we do our lives like that, don't we? Oh Lord, come into my house and look around. But there are a few rooms, oh, yeah. a few rooms that I would prefer you to stay away. Right. There are some places I don't want you to go. But Christ says, I've been walking around right. in every room right. and I know. Right. I know. Right. He notices, first of all, the difficulties that they face. Look at verse 13. He says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's Seat is. Next week I'll be preaching a um, family meeting up in Virginia for a couple of days. And so uh, my wife and I, she's going with me. We're flying out and we are uh, going to D.C. for a couple of days. I have never been to Washington, D.C. Never been. She's been. I have never been. And so we're taking two days early and we are going to the big swap. That's where we are going. And we're going to go and see if we can look at all of the crooks that are in Washington, D.C. It is a cesspool is what it is. And I am sure, I am sure that after those two days that I will come out feeling filthy and defiled and depraved and will want to take a hot shower and get all of the stench off of me. But I'm only going for two days. Thank God I don't live there. Now, if you're visiting and you live there, God bless you but I'm glad that I don't live there. But not some of the Christians in Pergamos. They're not visiting. They live there. And this is where Satan's seat is. Satan had a seat in their city. Now, now, now what is exactly does that mean? There, there are several things that have been suggested. I'll give you a few, a few of those. Uh, one commentator said that it is referring to Uh, The temple to the Greek god Zeus, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, is the altar of Zeus that was in the city of Pergamos. It was built like a throne, the throne of Zeus. And maybe that's what Christ is referring to when he talks about Satan's seat. The second religion uh, or or, or, or religion of that city was to the worship of the god of healing. Esculapius is his name. That was the Greek God of healing. By the way, that god is it was a goddess, not a god, that goddess was always represented by snakes. The temple had a snake pit, and they had serpents, snakes slithering all over the altars, and people would come from all over the world, and they would lay down hoping the snakes would crawl over them, and somehow that would give them some healing. By the way, the symbol for that was a rod with a serpent. Wrapped around the rod. That sound familiar to you? Maybe that's what Christ was referring to when he talked about Satan's seat. The third cult of Pergamos was emperor worship. Of course it was. They had a temple to Caesar. They had a temple to three other emperors. It's the capital of the Roman Empire in that province. Emperor worship. By the way, the most idolatrous religion in the world today is Roman Catholicism. (laughs) Emperor worship in pagan Rome was a forerunner of idolatry in papal Rome. There's a book in my library by the name of Tale of uh, the Two Babylons by Alexander Hislop. Some of you have read that. He traces the history of the Babylonian religion from the days of of Babel all the way to the church at Rome. He names Babylon as the seat of Satan's kingdom. But when Babylon fell, Pergamus replaced it as the seat of Satan's authority, and then eventually it became the city of Rome. Satan's seat. The word "seat," by the way, is a position of authority. In most ancient homes, the husband or the father of the house would have a special seat that he sat in. It was a symbol of his authority in the home. And then the word seat became a symbol for a power that a ruler would have over a kingdom. He ruled from his seat of authority. So when Christ speaks of Satan's seat, it's not just a place he sat down. It is speaking of his authority. In every city, there are temples to many gods, but there's always one God that held sway. And in this city, it is Satan that held sway. He was comfortable in their city. He was at home in their city. He talks about the difficulties that they faced. And then he talks about the devotion that they proclaimed. Look at it again. I know thy works where thou dwellest, where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name. A name stands for the person carrying that name. To say they held fast to his name is to say they held fast to Christ. It means that they believed in Christ, the person behind the name. And to hold fast to his name is to hold fast to him. So in a city that is unsympathetic to Christianity, they were not ashamed to hold fast, to proclaim his name. But to hold to something indicates that something is trying to take it away from you. It indicates there was a struggle to hold on to it. Right. Imagine the dangers of living in Satan's city, where his seat was, where his seat of authority was, and you're proclaiming the name of Christ. When Satan controls every aspect of the city, he can level persecution and terror and even death against you, and you can hold fast to his name, but you may lose everything else. And Christ says, I know you have held fast to my name. And he says, and hast not denied my faith. There are opportunities, but you didn't deny the faith. You've read the precious scriptures. You have adopted a body of doctrine. This becomes your creed. This becomes your doctrine. And the city disputes it. It mocks you for believing it. They try to debate it. They try to take it away from you. But nothing can make you deny my faith. The world changes times and cultures, but... But you held on to the faith. You were ordered, you were ordered to let go of it or lose your life. You held on to it. You were ordered to, to burn incense to the gods and prove your allegiance to the Roman Empire, but you held on to my faith. Oh, he talks about the difficulties that they faced, but, but the devotion that they proclaimed, and then the danger that they feared. He says in verse 13, even in those days we're in a Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you. Can you imagine if the authorities came into our church and arrested one of our members? And we watched one of our members face the death squad just for practicing his faith. That would shake a church up, wouldn't it? That's exactly what happened. We don't know who Antipas was. But he was a member of the church, and he was martyred. By the way, the word Antipas, Antipas is a compound of two words. Anti, anti, it means against. Antipus. pus, it means all. His word literally means against all. He was against everything in the city. Everything they did. Everything they proclaimed. He was against every every bit of it. But in a church, in a church, in a a city where Satan held reign, here is a man that you can take away my life, but you cannot take away my witness. He paid the ultimate price. In the 10th century, there was a historian named Simon. Simon wrote a 10-volume book detailing the martyrdom of the church in the early centuries. Now, you take this as legend, you take it as history, you can take it any way that you want to. But in that book, he detailed extensively about the martyrdom of Antipas. And he says that the way that Antipas was martyred was by being roasted alive in a bronze bowl. He says that in Pergamus that they had built a bronze bowl that was hollow inside, and it had a door that you could put a person inside of that hollow bowl, and you could lock the door so they couldn't get out. They would then take, and they would light a fire under that bowl, and that bowl would heat up so the person inside would literally roast to death. They built that bull so the the horns of the bull were like like pipes where, where, where the person inside screaming, you could hear it coming out of those pipes and it would sound like the bellowing of a bull. Now, you can take that as history, you can take that as legend, you can take it any way you want to, but one of their members was taken out of the congregation and martyred for his faith, and they knew that they could be next. And Jesus calls him, my faithful martyr. My faithful martyr. He was faithful even in the face of death. So here's the applause of Christ for the church. But then there is the admonition of Christ for the church. When you read verse number 13 and you stop, you would have to conclude this was a great church. Everything so far is commendable about this church. They've held fast to his name. They've held fast to the doctrine. They live where Satan lives, where his seat of authority is. And even when they are putting their own members to death, they are still faithful. But then you come to verse 14. But I have a few things against thee. There evidently is something in this church that is so insidious that it cannot be overlooked. Despite your faithfulness and doctrine and standing against those on the outside, Christ says, I see something that must be addressed. There is something more dangerous and deadly inside the church than in what is outside the church. It doesn't diminish their courage or their stand for the truth. But if this thing is left unchecked, it will destroy your church quicker than the persecutions. It is something that I I must address. In fact, it is so insidious that Christ addresses it personally. He says, I have somewhat against thee. This is personal to me. I have something against you. You may have victory in one area, but do not be blindsided by it and not see the dangers that you face in other areas. Well, what what is the infection? What is the infection that has gotten to the body that threatens to poison the whole body? What is it that has Christ so stirred up? Here it is in one word. It is compromise. Yeah, compromise. Yeah. You'll find that in each of these churches, Satan comes with a different tactic. In Ephesus, he tries to corrupt the church through coldness. Coldness. You've left your first love. In Smyrna, in Smyrna he attempts cruelty, persecution against the church. In pergamus, it is compromise. Somebody has said that Satan has two weapons, that is intimidation and enticement. He'll either try to get you to bow to pressure or just succumb to temptation. He will come in as a roaring lion or he comes in as an angel of light. And it seems like that there were leaders in the church who were suggesting accommodation with the world and maybe the the, the world will not pressure us so much, maybe it will spare our lives. And what we need to do is we need to find some common ground. And I use the word infection because that's exactly what compromise is. It is infection in a church. I thought about infection itself. Infection begins at the microscopic level. Some germ, some bacteria enters into your body. It's so small that you cannot see it. But you want to address it at the earliest stages. Because if the infection is allowed to grow, then it causes very serious illness in the body. And that's how compromise begins. It begins at the very smallest level in little areas that seem to be okay. But when it grows, it threatens the health of the entire body. Oh, it starts so small. I thought about infection when it invades the body. That the human body has an immune system to fight against it. But if the body is malnourished, if the body is weary... If the body is fatigued, if the body is weak, if the body is not strong, then the immune system is weakened and it can't fight off the infection. And what the body needs is it needs proper care. It needs nourishment. It needs rest. It needs to be strengthened. And so the church. It needs to be strengthened by the word of God and by the spirit of Christ. And sometimes a body a body can be infected with, with a harmful organism and it goes into remission for a little bit. But it's still there. If it's not dealt with, if it's not completely purged from the body, here's what it's doing. It's lying dormant there until the body is weakened and it gives it an opportunity to be reactivated and to do its damage. Yeah, i right, right. tell you something about infection. Infection can be transmitted various ways. One of the most common ways is by direct contact with another carrier of that infection. We've had a few people with COVID in the last couple of weeks, and they're not here. We know to stay away because when somebody has a virus, they stay away because that virus could be contagious. You have gotten sick just by being around other people who are sick, right? Compromise is more caught by being around others who preach compromise. You, you can catch it by being around other people who have it. But I will even say this. There are some germs, that, some bacteria that is so potent that it can live without a host. It can live outside of the body. That's why we sanitize things. We clean things down because we know that germs can live on the surface. We wash our hands. Germs can live just in the environment, just in the environment. And there are people who could go to a church where compromise is in the environment. It is in the air. I know it's Wednesday night, but I'm trying to preach here. And it's, it's just part of the environment. And you breathe it in when you walk into the building. And the way to stop the infection is to stop the transmission of the infection. That means the person who has been infected needs to take some medicine. He needs some treatment to get it out. And if he won't take the medicine, then it might even get so bad in a part of the body that that part of the body has to be eradicated. It might even have to be amputated to keep it from spreading to other parts of the body sometimes a removal is necessary to preserve the rest of the body And I say to you that when compromise invades a local church, it very quickly spreads to other members and it will multiply unless it is stopped. But Christ has given the church a very strong immune system through the preaching of the word and and through the spirit of God and, and the power of Christ. But if a church is malnourished, if a church is not feeding on the word of God, if it's not relying on the Holy Spirit, then it is weakened, it is weakened by the compromise. And when the immune system is weakened, and it opens itself up to other diseases and other devilish doctrines and opens the door to all kinds of other things. And sometimes the church will deal with compromise at the surface level, but if it is not purged completely, it's still there. It's waiting for the right opportunity to reactivate itself. It's just gone into sleep mode, waiting for the right time to attack again in order to stop it from metastasizing to other parts of the body, you had to take some strong medicine. If you're not willing to take the strong medicine, it's possible. It's possible that that part of the body has to be put out for the sake of the body. You know, I would tell you this, that a body that's been infected by some germ will show it in other symptoms. You can't see the infection but you can see the effects of the infection. A fever, a cough, a loss of appetite. You'll see it in a church, won't you? No appetite, no appetite for the word of God at all. You know, it amazes me that I am able to put people to sleep in my preaching before I even begin preaching. That astounds me. I understand 15 or 20 minutes in, you're not interested in this particular subject, take you a nap. But before I finish reading my text, people are asleep. There is no appetite for the Word of God. Did you know that when an area is infected that sometimes it swells in size? Do not mistake the swelling for growth. That's not growth. That's a swelling. Huh? There's a lot of churches that have infected with compromise and they are swelling, is what they are doing, but that's not proper growth. And when an area is infected, it is sore to the touch, it is inflamed. Don't want, I'm preaching on Wednesday night. Don't touch that because it's sore. It's irritating, it's touchy is what it is. Huh? This is well the problem with pergamus. There is no danger greater to a church than compromise. I could carry the analogy much farther, but compromise is a disease that has affected many, many churches. You can take a stand against the sins of the world, but what about the sins of the church? Oh, we ought to fight harder against the sins in our own building than we do the sins outside of this building. What good is it for us to stand up and boldly denounce the world if we don't denounce our own faults in our own church? So Christ says, I have a few things against thee. Because thou hast them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. You remember Balaam, don't you? Balaam is what I believe was a false prophet in the Old Old Testament and Balaam wants him to curse the nation of Israel and he discovers that he cannot curse the nation of Israel. God will not allow him. So he comes to Moab, the king of Moab, Balak, and says, here's the deal. Don't curse them. Join them. Have your women marry their men. And God himself will curse them. That's exactly what happened. It is the doctrine of compromise. But then he um, he says they have the doctrine of Balaam and and then he says in verse 15, "'Thou hast them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans.'" The Nicolaitans. Not a lot of information on the Nicolaitans, but we don't really know who they were. There are some guesses. I know that and Nico is where we get the Greek word Nike from. It means to conquer. Nicolaitans, laitans, laitans, people. So the word Nicolaitans means conquering the people devouring the people that's what it means and we don't know exactly if it's a class warfare between the laity and clergy we're not sure but it's in the context of compromise it is for sure there maybe the nicolaitans or the people the elders in the church are saying it is okay to serve christ and mix with the world as well nothing wrong with singing the songs of the world and dressing like the world and looking like the world can i tell you tonight that a christian is not a worldly? He doesn't want to look like the world. He doesn't want to sound like the world. He's not entertained by the world. He doesn't want to mix with the idols of the world. The church does not fashion its worship after the worship of the world. We do not fashion our life after the world. That's a So It's not a Christian. That's a worldling. is what it is. And here's what Christ says about that. He says, which thing I hate. I hate if I could put it like this. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. That's what he says. It's the strongest word that he could have possibly used. I have a deep seated antagonism and animosity toward compromise. Yes. Yes. I know it's a Wednesday night crowd, you're the spiritual ones for being here. But if you are a worldling, he hates your music. He hates the things you watch on television. He hates the movies you attend. I wonder if there's anything in your life that Christ hates. That you have justified but is utterly objectionable to Christ. He's speaking directly to the leaders of the church who have allowed these influences into the church and he hates it when you use your influence to lead someone astray. What is his admonition for the church? Verse number 19. Repent. Repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The city of Pergamos was fighting against this church, but Christ says, if you don't take care of the compromise, I will fight against you. If you don't deal with the compromise, I will. We'll deal with it. He says you are wrong and you must repent of the lies that you bought into, the ways that you are enamored by, the false teachers you've been listening to. You need to repent of that. And can I say this and I'll, I'll not finish the message, I'll just end it. There's not a lot of heartfelt repentance right, that goes inside the church anymore, is there? I notice this all over the country where I preach. Very few people come to an altar anymore it 's a problem in our church it 's a problem in most churches I go to. I go to places and preach my heart out and feel like that there was a touch of the Holy Spirit there, and the same four people come to the altar every time we call it an altar because it 's supposed to be a place of surrender and a place. Of sacrifice, I surrender to your word. I sacrifice myself, my life, my dreams, my sins. I sacrifice it all. If there is a need in our life, we come to the altar. Lord, fix the need. We ought to come to the altar and say, Lord, fix me. Is there anything in my life that you find objectionable? Is there anything in my life that you... Hate that you have such animosity and antagonism against, and I repent as fervently as I ask you to do something for me. Are we such a holy church that we no longer have anything to repent of? I give you the third thing his assurance to the church. He says in verse 17, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the hidden manna. Hidden manna. I think that for me the promise to the overcomers in the church of Pergamos is probably the hardest symbols in the book of Revelation for me to interpret. I've read numerous explanations. None of them have been satisfactory to me. Maybe it's a symbol of fellowship with Christ. that's reserved for those who keep themselves pure from the word. Sounds good. I, I'm not sure that's all there is to it. He'll give you the hidden manna. And then he says, and we'll give him a white stone, white stone. Some commentators think that's a reference to the black and white stones that juries would use to return a verdict. Black means conviction. White means acquittal. And then he says, in the stone, a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it had a young preacher call me one time, and he asked me about that verse. And he said, that new name written which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. He said, said, what is that name? I said, how am I supposed to know? It doesn't say no man knoweth except Timbalur. How would I know what the name is? I know that when a person assumed a higher position of authority, he often changed his name. Octavius became Augustus. Think of all the name changes in the Bible. Abram, Abraham, Saul, Paul. All of these name changes. And every time that God changed a person's name, it was an improvement. It was a promotion is what it was. He's given them a new name. It marks a promotion. And Christ says that if they remain faithful, he'll give them a new name, which nobody else knows. The whole world, none of them will know. But I'll know your name. Here's the challenge from the church at Pergamos, Anacom. The church at Pergamos has long passed off the scene. The message is irrelevant today as it was in the first century. We live in pretty much the same world that they did a world that is anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-Christianity. I tell you that we don't face persecution, but there is antagonism. And Christ expected that church to remain pure from compromise, and he expects this church to remain pure from compromise as well. Vance Havner, I used to love to read Vance Havner. Vance Havner said, You cannot sing, there is no other way but the way of the cross. If you are unwilling also to sing, then I bid farewell to the way of the world. You cannot take your stand beneath the cross of Jesus if you're not content to let the world go by. You cannot properly survey the wondrous cross and not sacrifice the vain things that charm me first. You cannot sing, My Jesus, I love thee, and mean it until for him all the follies of sin you resign. You cannot sing from your heart, Whiter than snow, If you're unwilling for the Lord to break down every idol, cast out every foe. There's always been pressure on the Christian and on the church to compromise. And Satan has been crafty enough to not always call it compromise. He'll point to the other churches. He'll point to the other Christians. He's crafty enough to make worldliness and a soft gospel look so right and so appealing. But Christ hasn't changed his message. It is said that in every church there are remnants of these seven churches. That in every church there is a cold-hearted believer like Ephesus. That in every church there is a suffering Christian like Smyrna. That in every church there is a compromising Christian like Pergamos. That may be true, but it doesn't have to be. There does not have to be a cold-hearted Christian in every church. There does not have to be a compromising believer in every church. So may we take a message written 2,000 years ago and put it in 2024. Is there anything in my life that you hate? To bow your heads.